Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. We're doing a virtual 5K tomorrow, Sherry. How do you feel about that? Oh, I love that I can like lay in bed and just imagine or watch people run on the computer screen. And I don't have to be a part of that virtual 5K. I don't think that's what it means by virtual. I signed up for this virtual 5K. I thought that's what it meant, like watching people. No. No, I mean... Sleep in for cancer, you know, that sort of stuff. Sleep in for cancer? Yeah, like they have things like that. I don't know. They they have some sleep in for something. But... (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to commit to sleeping in for this cause. (laughs) No, the... Virtual just means everyone's got to do it on their own, in their own place, with their own route, because we can't all get together and run a 5K, although we're getting pl- pretty close to the point where we can do that. I thought you'd be excited to do it this way, because nobody would have to watch you or you know, uh, prod true. you along. No, well, I, mean, I guess I think, now. Well, for most people, the motivation on the side, you know, go runners, yay, like that's so motivating. It's motivating for me, but I think for you, you just want to like stab people in the eye when they're doing I think I would go that extreme, but I would like, I do have a little bit of competitive streak. Like I probably would push through, you know, I could see like, I could pick up the pace if people were watching me, Yeah, you know, that. But I was just thinking that it was just like, oh, we just get to watch people run and on the, you know. Oh, well, I'll help you set the alarm clock tonight so that you're ready to go for the virtual 5K in the morning. So I have to get up early on the Saturday. Get up early and go. Well, I guess it'll be fun. Run, walk three miles. So, yeah. I mean, you got to admit, like, our COVID lockdown has kind of been, like, ideal sleeping pattern for me. Yeah. Like, not having to get up and go anywhere. Yes. You do like your mornings. Yes. Well, tomorrow will be something different. Absolutely. Looking forward to it, though. Something different on a on a morning. And it's uh, it's coordinated. It's run and encouraged by our friend Amber, um, who recorded a podcast yeah. episode with us a little while ago. I didn't actually write down the number for that one. It was in the in the seventies episode something seventy yeah. with Amber. Positive Amber. So if you want to learn more about her running, um, you can also check her out at. Her Facebook group is Recovery Road Runners uh, on Facebook, and she's looking for some new members. Happy to have people join her, and it, it is it's a great way to move through recovery. Whether you are the alcoholic in sobriety or the loved one, uh, that exercise practice is so important for recovery and discovery. So, uh, good luck with your five k in the morning. Yeah. Hope it goes well. Yeah. We're going to talk today about the five, and, and I don't know how the title will end up when we actually publish this, but the working title is The Five Universalisms of HFAs Through the Eyes of the Loved Ones. HFAs, of course, means high-functioning alcoholics. We've we've had a lot of conversations recently, a lot really this, this week when we're recording this episode, uh, and with people who are the loved ones of alcoholics and the things that they've shared with us just keep coming up over and over. They're the same over and over. And so that's what, when we use the word universalism, that's what we're talking about. We haven't done a scientific study. We can't say that this is scientifically significant, but it happens over and over with the people that we talk to and work with. They, They refer to the same things. And so 
we've got these five universalisms that the uh, high-functioning alcoholics experience and are experienced secondhand through the loved ones that we want to talk about. The first one, jumping right in, is childhood trauma. And I wrote in my notes, childhood trauma of any degree, and I underlined the of any degree. I know, Sherry, one of the things that I battled for a long time when I was refusing to admit that I was an alcoholic was, you know, first of all, like, what do I have to be an alcoholic about? I was never abused. I was never sexually assaulted. My parents are still married to this day, and there was always enough food and shelter, and I, you know, I had a stable environment. I moved a few times as a kid, and that's that's a little bit challenging. But that but was like your father's promotion. So yeah, it was, it was like for good reasons. Well, yeah, good reasons. It was success. You guys upgraded houses. Yeah, and, you know. So for a long time, I would say to myself, you know, what I can't be an alcoholic. What do I have to be an alcoholic about? Doesn't make any sense. And one of the things that we've learned the the more time we spend doing this work and researching and reading and listening and you know mostly listening is that the trauma that causes someone to find relief in alcohol it can be trauma of any degree it do, it doesn't have to be something significant like like child abuse or neglect or your parents got you know divorced three times it it can be anything and we talked a lot about it on episode 77 with Catherine Craig we talked about ACEs, adult, or pardon me, adverse childhood experiences. ACEs is the acronym. And again, they don't have to be major. They can be anything that's preventing us from getting our needs met, our, our normal, biological, psychological, human needs, anything that's preventing those from being met. So often in those idyllic uh home environments, you know, in order to make it so that you're in the nice fancy house and you've got plenty of food and clothes and disposable income, often one or both of the parents are working a ton, for example. This is I'm just making this example yeah. up, but this is the kind of thing that we hear. And they're working so much that they're not there for their children emotionally. Well, it looks from the outside picture perfect, like Norman Rockwell painted it. But on the inside, you know, that kid's getting ignored. That was the, the case that springs to mind just as we're talking is Robin Williams. You know, his father was a successful auto industry executive and his mother was kind of a socialite, I guess. Spent a lot of time with her friends and, and you know, socializing. And he, he was very, very lonely. And that's how he grew up. He grew up with this wild imagination that everyone gives him a ton of credit for, myself included. I'm a huge Robin Williams fan. But there were needs that were not getting met. Mm -hmm. And so he turned to drugs, uh, alcohol being the primary drug, but other drugs as well. And it eventually cost him his life. So it doesn't matter how ideal the situation, if some of those needs aren't being met, it's trauma. It is traumatic. And Alcohol is the the thing that many of us, so many of us go to, to, you know, to quench that thirst and, and make those, the things that are missing go away. I want to talk a little bit about something that happened this week at our house. My parents were visiting. It was great to have them here from South Carolina. Uh, they're, they both have their, their shots and you and I have our shots and everyone's immunized except for the kids. 
but they felt safe to travel. And so it was the first time we'd seen them in not, not quite a year, but almost a year. And so it was, it was really great to spend some time with them. But, and my dad's a, he's a really funny guy. He, he finds the humor in most situations, but often it's in a minor way at the expense of others. And, you know, I, he definitely 100% doesn't do it to be vicious, but I don't think, I honestly don't think he realizes how it adds up over time. So let me give you an example. The first morning that they were here, I was cooking eggs for the kitchen, for the kids in the kitchen, well, for the whole family. And I, I have for years now, when I fry eggs in a frying pan, I just flip them with, you know, like, I guess it's from watching the Food Network. I used to be a big fan of diners, drive-ins, and dives. But I just flip the eggs in the pan rather than getting out a spatula. And, you know, it just takes a little flip of the wrist. And when I was first figuring out how to do that, I threw a lot of eggs on the floor. In fact, I uh, had so many mistakes that when I do it, I don't do it over the stovetop because when you miss and an egg flies out of the pan on the stovetop, that's a huge mess to clean up. I always turn to the side and do it over the kitchen floor. And so my dad's in the kitchen and the very first egg, I just, I wasn't even thinking. I turned to the side and I went to flip it and I lost it and it went on the floor. Now I honestly, this isn't, this isn't me bragging. There's not much to brag about here, but I haven't lost an egg in six months, maybe longer. But of course, you know, my dad's here and boom, egg goes on the floor. And I was just like, oh, well, and I went to get another egg. Well, he cackled with laughter. He thought it was so funny. And he looked to one of my sons and said, look, your dad's trying to show off for his dad. And he flipped an egg on the floor. And then uh, my dad got down and cleaned it up and he made another, he took another shot and said, maybe I shouldn't have cleaned it up. Maybe I should wait till you were finished cooking to see how many of them you're going to throw on the floor. And so, you know, it, it, it is funny and we have to have a sense of humor and we have to be able to laugh at ourselves. And I feel like I do an okay job anyway at laughing at myself. Do you think I laugh at myself okay? Yeah, yeah. I think you own your mistakes. You finally, you know. Yeah. You don't take life so seriously. Good sense of humor. But in the moment, it was it was kind of crushing for me when my dad said that. And, he, and, and to hear him laugh, he laughed harder at that moment than... Anything the entire week they were here, he laughed at my mistake, you know, mistake my yeah. my little failure, and it it just threw me back to that. You know, this was a big part of my childhood. My dad is a funny guy, like I said, and his sense of humor is he's a, got a good sense of humor, but it's always kind of at the expense of the people around him. Little jabs, little jabs, little jabs, and if you're not around him much, you probably think it's pretty funny, and you probably think, you know. As long as I can give as well as I can receive, give it, give it back, poke him back, poke fun back at him, then uh, all is well. But when, when you're his kid and it's been a main source of the communication in your life for your entire life, it starts to pile up and it starts to hurt. And, you know, I, I think I told you later in the day, I told you about it and I told you it didn't really sting as much as it has in the past, certainly when I was drinking, those kinds of things stung a lot and it would have sent me right for the beer refrigerator. Don't care that it's nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, but it, you know, it didn't have that same effect, but it still, it still lingered, you know, for a day or two, I was thinking about that. And so that when we talk about the, the childhood trauma 
is of any degree. It doesn't have, I mean, again, my parents are wonderful, wonderful people and they could not have been, you know, more engaged and, and done a better job of providing. But there are things that uh, just kind of, you know, an emotional need not being met maybe would be support and instead the the teasing the teasing wasn't wasn't a lot in a in one time at one time but year after year after year of the same thing it piles up and I don't feel comfortable giving it back to my dad I don't know why I don't know if it's because he's my elder or it's some respect thing or out of fear I don't know what it is but I don't feel comfortable teasing him back because he's a human too and he makes mistakes and when he does although I think he works awfully hard at not making mistakes honestly but when he does um, I don't feel comfortable giving it back to him and so um, so yeah so he, there's a fairly good chance he's going to listen to this and uh, so I, I'm, I didn't have the balls dad to talk to you about it live so now you get to hear through the podcast how I feel and that's not very good communication on my part, and I feel pretty crappy about it. But, um, but it's real. And if he, you know, doesn't listen to it, the reason I'm retelling this story is mostly for our listeners. And I, I think it's really important if you're the the spouse of an alcoholic, or if you're the alcoholic yourself, to to understand that just because your parents are still married and you had a roof over your head the whole time doesn't mean there aren't things about our upbringing that are causes challenges later in life. And th this one's significant enough, Sherry, that I have worked really hard to change the dynamic with our kids. We have four kids. The first one's a girl and the other three are boys. And in my household, I as a kid, I, I was a... Well, I am a boy. <laughs> thought I'd clarify that. And uh, my sister um, is a girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. You really thought that out, didn't you? Yeah, I'm good, good at this podcast thing. Um, and she was always, she wasn't teased. At least this is my recollection. This is the way I believe it to have happened. She wasn't teased. She was kind of, you know, protected and treated like a princess to some degree. And, you know, just always treated a little differently. And I recognized not until I was sober, you know, years ago, but I recognized that I was replicating the exact same pattern with our kids. I would elevate Catherine and, you know, treat her like a princess and protect her and, you know, really make sure that the outside world wasn't doing her harm. I mean, that's not to say that we didn't have high expectations for her grade-wise and responsibility-wise. I mean, we still held her to those standards, but I I don't feel like I teased her. But the boys, I teased relentlessly. You know, teased them if they slept in. You know, oh, it's noon. I'm wondering if you were ever going to get up and, you know, things like that. And, oh, you know, gosh, can you fit any more in your mouth when you're trying to eat? You know, just just relentless little digs. And it's the same thing I grew up with. And a, a few years ago now I I kind of recognized it and made a conscious effort to stop doing that to our boys and because I don't want to pass this cycle on because I do think it's significant and I'm fully aware of how wimpy this conversation might make us sound might make me sound me specifically to some of our listeners when I'm talking about how you know getting little digs little jabs 
constantly um, how harmful that was to me when we compare it to some of the real significant trauma that some of our listeners have experienced. <laughs> Why are you raising your hand? I just wanted to say something. I want you to talk. I've been trying a couple times. I've been doing I've this isn't a Zoom call. We're not going to like talk over each other. We can talk at the same time. So, but but to that point, that it's like just little digs, or maybe it's a few times when you felt like you really needed your parents' support and understanding, and they blew you off. Like I was listening to another podcast, and they were talking about something that happened in their backseat of the car with the sibling and um, the fighting, and the parents kind of blew them off, and the kid was, you know, he was really hurt by the comments his sister had said, and he wished that somebody had defended him. Mm. And um, it kind of made me think, like, sometimes, because our the two younger boys in our household, they have a tendency to have personality differences and argue and bicker to the point where you're just like, I don't want to hear it anymore as the parent, you know. So whenever I do kind of blow off, like, I don't care who started it, yeah. I don't want to hear all the details. It's the same story over and over. And then I like kind of go in my mind, think about that incident and how then that's has been something that this man has carried through with his, you know, incident that happened in the backseat of the car where his sister was teasing him so bad he was crying and his parents weren't being supportive or there for him. So I think that it's, you know, that we don't understand as parents how and what is going to trigger and carry forward. Yeah. I know gonna... my mother remarried at the beginning of my high school career. And I shouldn't say career. I guess I graduated in four years. I didn't make a career out of it. But the beginning of my <laughs> high school years. And I felt like that was a very hard transitional time. You know, it was a big scary move to the high school. And, you know, just that. And she was otherwise occupied. She was otherwise occupied. So sometimes I did feel neglected. And I think that that's why I made some bad decisions in high school and college. Because I didn't feel like I had her support. Um, so I think that when we are thinking about these childhood traumas, it's, you know, whatever has hurt you. Yeah. And whatever lingers. And whatever has changed you in ways. So like you said, it doesn't have to be a lot of big events or continuous abuse and neglect, but it could just be, you know, dismissive in a time that you really needed your parent to be supportive and on your side. Well, look, it's it's, it's becoming more widely and widely accepted and believed that really all of the adult defects, emotional, psychological defects that we suffer from came from our childhood. More and more and more and more people talk about that now. You know, not just you and me, but like the experts, the psychologists mm -hmm. talk about how this all comes from our childhood. And there are so many families that are intact and stable and give all outward signs that they're great. Um, you, you can't have this much adult, uh, you know, adults with, with challenges, with emotional challenges, if there isn't something going on, even in those houses they look great. And it doesn't, I mean, my my example is a perfect one. It doesn't have to be intentional. Mm -hmm. You know, for, for us as children to not be getting our needs met, our emotional needs met some of the time, it doesn't have to be because someone is intentionally abusing us. It can be, it can be just, just as simple and innocent as what I just described. And I yeah. think, you know, your, your example is a perfect one as well. You know, we want to just stop arguing. It's the same thing every time and move on 
but sometimes digging in and and letting each side be heard uh, gives them that's one of the needs that they need to have met right yeah they need to be heard and I think that that you know is kind of for as adults we think oh we just want to be heard we want to be appreciated and understood and and listened to and given the time and attention to what's hurting us and then you're like you know, this is the millionth time in our relationship with you two boys that it's the same thing, yeah. you know, and it's always a different perspective. And one of you can't both, you know, and I always try to say, I know that you both have different perspectives, but someone's not being fully honest or owning up to to their side of it. And so it's really hard. And parenting is very hard. I'm not saying that we need to be perfect parents, but when you realize, you know, you might want to go back and apologize and say, you know, parents make mistakes. Sometimes I'm grumpy. I don't want to hear like, you know, we've got, I've got a million stories I could tell you where I have that desire that I want to go back and redo it or all I can do now is apologize. But yeah. Yeah. So, so if you are a high functioning alcoholic, if you drink too much and you're not, you're not ready to own that label, which is totally fine. Maybe, maybe that label isn't appropriate, but you drink too much. Or if you are the loved one of someone who drinks too much. I mean, we've, we've spent over 20 minutes on this now. I think it's a big deal. I think it's a really good idea for in either of those positions to, to look at, at what, what those um, needs that maybe weren't met in childhood are. And, and don't just dismiss it as, oh, you know, I had a perfect life. I got nothing to complain about. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest issues that we see. People say, you know, every, everything's fine. I, what, what do I have to, to be worried about? That can't be the reason I drink too much. Well, it, it must just be, I must just be, uh, you know, genetically predisposed because nothing bad happened to me. Well, I think that stuff happens to everybody. I think that's why they have changed it to ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, uh, experiences from like childhood trauma because people want to say trauma is only big bad things that happened a car wreck that killed your mother and you were there you know like those so then they're like it's not you know always that so then they've got that they've really labeled it as aces and also like you and i have just been kind of like talking recently about the attachment theories of your parenting you know how you were brought up and how that translates into your modern day relationships so attachment theories um can have a lot to do with it. And I think that then you're not blaming your parents. You're not seeing like, oh, well, I didn't have bad traumas. But I had some small things that happened throughout that kind of guided where I felt comfort level and connection to my first sets of human beings that I needed to be bonded with. Yeah, and if we just blow it off and say, oh, I had the idyllic childhood, and we don't dig in to how attachment worked for us growing up, and we don't dig into our aces... We're just doing ourselves a disservice. We're just, that's just pushing it down. It doesn't, you know, we're not saying you need to, you know, go to therapy four hours a day because of your issue, but you've got to face it. you got to address it. you got to admit mm-hmm. that it's impacting your adult life. And even just understanding Hugely it. important. Yeah. Just even just understanding and accepting it and say, but it doesn't make me who I am. Well, in case you were curious about whether Sherry and I thought it was important <laughs> or not, <laughs> we've, uh, we're going to spend... We had intended to spend one fifth of the podcast on it, and we've spent about half of the podcast on it this episode. But it is—it's super important. The second of the five universalisms of high-functioning alcoholics through the eyes of the loved ones: work success justification. 
Now, what we mean by this is so many cases, myself included, you know, work success, the importance of work success continues to dog me, I think, and make my life unbalanced. But certainly when I was drinking, it was much, much worse. And it's not just about unbalance. There are so many times when we're we're drinking and we're ignoring the obvious that's right in front of us. We're ignoring that we're we're just destroying our relationship with the people we loved. We love the most, the ones that are on the inside, the ones that really know, the ones that know how much we drink. We're we're crushing those relationships and we're creating depression and anxiety in our lives and there's just all this stuff that's obviously going bad, but hey, I got a promotion at work and uh, everyone at work thinks I'm doing great and I'm getting everything done and I got a good review at my annual last year and I got a raise coming and you know when I get to work everything's everybody's joking around and positive and there's no there's nothing to see here and this is a, a huge negative I believe from our society our our belief that the the indication of success are things like wealth and power and job status and fame. Because we believe that wholeheartedly throughout our society, as long as you're doing good at work, you can pretty much let everything else unravel and you can ignore it and keep doing what you're doing. Did you feel that way with me? I mean, we, we when I was in the throes of alcoholism, I certainly, we had a very challenging and stressful work environment. We owned our own business and it was up and down. There were certainly times when it was good, but there were times when it wasn't. And it didn't necessarily matter how hard I worked. And that was, you know, a huge problem for me emotionally when I would be doing everything I'd been taught to do and knew to do and working super hard. And then it still wasn't going well. I took that as a personal affront. Um, But did you, did you see me like leaning on work as long as I was working hard and providing for the family, then get off my back about my drinking. Did you feel that? I feel that was more obvious um, when you when we didn't own the bakery and you were working for a company. Um, because like we hosted a Christmas party because you were a boss of a... Um, I feel bad that I can't even remember. Like people that people, worked for me. Yeah, like I mean, Employees. you know, you had got you had been given this like task of having this electronic commerce sort of thing, and so oh, you right, were in right. charge of a certain amount of people. And you're like, you know, I look, I'm the boss here of all these people that are at this party that I'm hosting, and and um, so I feel like that was a little bit. It was, that was easier to kind of pinpoint because then also with owning our own business. Sometimes no matter how hard you worked, just the economy was downturn. We had to make lot, you know, some budgetary cuts at home and at the bakery and and then that would be your excuse to drink because of soothing your pain yeah. and frustration. So, I think that was harder, but what I remember, this was one of those things that I remember because of my good memory. We were at our neighbors down at the end of the block and they have a really fancy modern house. Mm-hmm. And we were there for some sort of social gathering and they our kids were really impressed that in their kitchen they had a 
And this was, let me just reference this. This was like five, seven years ago. Okay. But they had an automatic, like, sensor. When your hand was under there, the water would turn on. You know, you see those, like, Yeah. yeah, at the kitchen sink. So you see those, you know, in public bathrooms, not in someone's personal home. Right. And then the owner, the female owner of the house was telling our kids, well, when you work hard, you can afford things like this. Yeah. And I was, like, so pissed because I was like, my husband works so much harder than your husband. You know, but her husband and she both worked for corporations where they were taken care of in their working hard and getting promotions. So, yeah, in your work, when you worked for a corporation, I could see that it would be hard for you to blow off. Because oftentimes, even early on, you'd be like... Look, we have this big house. I'm doing great. I'm getting promotions. We're getting transferred because yeah. I got a promotion. I'm doing all that I'm supposed to be doing. So I don't, I don't, I'm not an alcoholic or I don't abuse alcohol. Meanwhile, our intimate relationship was already beginning to fail. That was one of the first things that went sideways. Your ability to trust me was deteriorating because I would drink too much and do things that weren't trustworthy and deny and and put the blame on you and things like that. So, and and you would at times walk around on eggshells and the kids would be able to sense that something was wrong and I would mope around and the kids would be able to sense that something was wrong. So the place where we should have been putting the highest value, the most importance, the home life, this family, this these people that we were trusted with and that it's our job to nurture and send out in the world as adults someday not to mention the relationship between you and I. All of that's going down or sideways. and But, hey, I'm working hard and providing. And, you know, like you said, in the corporate days, I, I, I got promotions regularly and I got raises regularly. And it, it just well, did that's... so much to justify the drinking. And, oh, I got to drink because I have a stressful job. <laughs> if I had a nickel for every person that I've talked to, that says, well, let me tell you, early on in the conversation, they say, let me tell you a little something about my industry. I'm a firefighter. That's very stressful. There is heavy drinking in that industry. I'm, I'm in the news media, and we have to go out and, and, and be on these traumatic crime scenes, and boy, that is stressful. So there is heavy drinking in my industry. Um, I'm in the sports world, and boy, the camaraderie around sports after the event, we, there is heavy drinking. Every industry... There's heavy drinking, and every industry thinks, the people that are in it think that their industry is special because of the heavy drinking. Every industry drinks heavily. Well, I think in your job, you get external rewards, and in your family and home life, there aren't, it isn't quite as obvious, and you don't recognize those rewards until it's later on. Well, that's an excellent point. You know, uh, but but it should, in my humble opinion, be the most important. Yeah, because you don't work, see you, like this where you get the money to feed those people you're taking care yeah. of, and that should be it. It shouldn't be the most important thing in our lives, but for so many of us, it is. Yeah, there's a gender component. I think it's this is a stronger pull for males than females, just from <coughs> from our experience and what we've seen. <coughs> but it, it's just the career success is is way too important. Uh, in our culture and it leads to people being able to justify their drinking because hey everything's going well at work it's part of their identity their work their career their path that's absolutely part of who they are i said it a minute ago number three on the list of the five universalisms of high functioning alcoholics through the eyes of the loved ones is that 
we use alcohol as a coping tool. I said it earlier, you know, oh, I have a stressful job, so it's fine that I drink in the evening. Got to unwind. Yeah, I mean, this would be like, you know, trying to use a buzz saw to trim your fingernails. Like, alcohol is not the right tool for stress management. It just isn't. It seems like it is. It works for a while. You know, we just, again, these are universalisms. We universally assume that alcohol for stress management, that makes sense. But what what really happens in the neurology, what really happens in our brains, alcohol creates stress and chaos. So it might soothe the stress temporarily, but it makes it come raging back, makes the anxiety and the depression so much worse. So the tool that we're using to fix it is making the problem making the problem worse. So I don't think we need to dwell on that for a long time. I don't think there's probably anyone that's a half an hour into an intoxicated podcast episode who doesn't believe that alcohol is a bad coping tool mm-hmm. and is making matters worse when we think it's making them better. But I think that the important point here is nobody sets out to be an alcoholic. Nobody says, I want to ruin my family and I want to see if I can spend way more money than I have and let me see if I can get myself a divorce. Yeah. Nobody says that. So what they say is, I'm going to use alcohol to cope with my stressful situations. And they're just oblivious to the fact that it's pouring fuel on a fire because it's so culturally acceptable. And it does work for a while. It works for a while until it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And then it starts making matters so much worse. Number four on our list of universalisms of high-functioning alcoholics through the eyes of loved ones. This one is interesting to me. This one has come up a bunch recently with with people that we've talked to that have gone to a really vulnerable and honest place. And it's that we can't find our purpose in life while we're drinking. It surprised me. I, You know, I, I f- often feel like I sit and think and and ponder and strategize more than the average person. Amen. <laughs> Sherry agrees. But I think among alcoholics, I'm 100% normal. I think all of us sit and ponder and think and we've got we've you and I have described it as chaotic mind syndrome. The mind won't stop racing and we're always either regretting what we've done in the past or preparing for what we're going to do in the future and trying to be better and just racing thoughts, racing thoughts, racing thoughts. And part of that, for me, was always, it's not anymore, I feel much more content, which that's an elusive emotion for an alcoholic, contentness, contentedness. Contentment. Contentment. I think contentedness too. Never. Not contentness though, That was that is not English. Okay, contentment. We'll go with contentment. We'll go with your word. But that's so super elusive to an active alcoholic. And but this idea that we're trying to find our purpose in life. I thought that was just me. But we're learning again the more we talk to to people who are willing to be vulnerable and honest that that is super common. And it's usually the spouses of the alcoholics are the only ones who get to hear that level of honesty. You know, I just don't know what I should be doing with my life. I know I hate my job. I know this isn't it, but I don't know what the thing is. And for people of faith, 
you know, I don't know what God wants me to do. I mean, that's certainly how I felt. And I think a lot of people feel that way. I don't know what God want, has in mind for me. I know God's got a plan for all of us, but I don't know what his plan is for me. And how can I figure this out? What's my purpose in life? And then if you have parents that have these high expectations of you, and then there's, you know, like you add all these little things in, like whether you had a really rigorous religious upbringing that, you know, and you feel like, oh, there's going to be something extra special that I've been created for. Yes. And you put a lot of pressure on yourself, like, you know, or if you had a highly successful uh, parent that you felt like you needed to follow in their footsteps or you had, you know, parents that floundered financially and so you don't want that. It's it could you just never know how it's going to go mm-hmm. to have and create your purpose. And I I know that you and your sister always had and during conversations over the past years like I know I'm meant for something more than what I'm doing. Mhm. And I would always like, why? Why do you think that you're meant to be? And I would even kind of mock you. Why do you think that you're meant to be doing something extra special? Maybe what you're supposed to do is just be a father. Just be a loving husband. Just be a good person. Just be that great, you know, soccer coach in our community. Like, I always just kind of thought that as a kind of a an extra pressure that you added on yourself. Then that created more chaos. And that created you... To feel insecure and un, un or dissatisfied, unfulfilled, yeah. dissatisfied, and that's where the drinking filled up more and more. I think a part of it. I think you're 100 percent right, but I think a part of it is when we're drinking, there's so much shame. Even even before we've even thought about attempting to to get sober, even before we've even come close to admitting that alcoholism is a word that is associated with us. We overdrink, and we wake up in the morning, and we go, "Ugh, can't believe I did that. I don't remember what I said. Boy, my wife looks mad at me, and I don't know why." We have these instances way before we even come close to thinking about quitting alcohol that are shameful. And so, you know, when when you feel shame about the thing that you're doing, it's pretty natural to feel like you're not on the right course, even if you can't put those. You can't draw a direct line from one to the other. I overdrank and I'm shame and I'm full of shame. And by the way, also, uh, I don't like my job and I'm not fulfilling my purpose. <laughs> you might not be able to connect those dots, but one leads to the other. The shame of the alcohol abuse is what leads to this discontentment and this belief that we're not doing the right thing. We're not doing the thing that we're set out to do because I have to tell you I still don't know what my purpose is but it doesn't plague me at all it doesn't like I feel like you know I get up every day and I do my best I do my best with my family I do my best with this mission we're on and with with the work that we do and you know we somehow we've got enough money to to keep going and keep doing it and I don't you know I don't feel like that need for career success is there for me anymore. So there is a contentment that was never available before. And so I think not knowing what our purpose is and struggling with that as active alcoholics is the opposite of the contentment that you talked about, mm-hmm. that you found the word for. They, they, you can't, if you've got one, you're not going to have the other. Mm-hmm. And the contentment is much better. I don't know if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but 
I don't know. You know, you're not hurting and harming. No, I'm not hurting along people. the way, and I don't have anything I'm embarrassed about anymore. Yeah, I, that's the big thing. I don't have anything I'm embarrassed about anymore. I don't have anything I've. I don't. I don't say to myself constantly, "Oh, next time you've got to do better." I don't say that. I do. I want to improve, hundred percent. Every day, I want to be better than I was the day before. But it's not. It's not a shameful feeling. It's not. I don't feel bad about what I did yesterday just because I want to be better at whatever I'm doing today. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Is Every that... day you want to go f- closer to like, you know, not being, um, you just want to do better than the day before. You want to make progress. Yeah. And you, I mean, cause you, in, besides like recording podcasts and writing, um, you know, you, you do a lot where you are very much integrated into people's lives on a weekly basis, a group, different groups of people that you're touching. So I can see why. And that makes me feel very good. Like every day you're just, when you are going out to a writing group, you want to have, you want to be better than you were last week because you want to make the experience of the people that you are working with in these writing groups, that you're just a better person for them. You're a better writing coach for them or soccer boys, you know? So I get that. And that makes me so much happier than saying, I'm going to go after this promotion. I'm going to, we need to sell more bread at our bakery so we can make more money. Like, that's that's where it's a relief for me when I see that you want to be better to improve yourself every day for the humans that you touch and that you connect with. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Thank you for putting it that way. That makes me feel really good. But But also, I would encourage our listeners to, you know, be honest. Is this... Is this need for figuring out what your purpose in life is, is that part of the story of the alcoholic in your life? Because it's way more common than I thought. Again, I thought I was just a, I thought I was saddled with this chaotic mind that never rested and I was unique in that regard. All the other traits of my alcoholism were the same as everybody else's, but I had this, this weirdness about me, but we're finding, you know, it's embarrassing to talk about it. And so most people don't. But when we when we get people that are willing to be vulnerable and honest and they really talk about, yeah, you know, I, I'm constantly trying to figure out what my purpose is or my spouse is constantly trying to figure out what his purpose is. It's amazing to me how that fits into the category of a universalism. Number five on the list of the five universalisms of high functioning alcoholics through the eyes of the loved ones. Pause. I bet. That our listeners at the beginning <laughs> knew that we were 25 minutes into number one and thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to listen for a very long time today. Yeah. But here we are. Here we are at number five. At number five. Just, what, 18 minutes later. Yeah. Yeah. No, two's, two through five didn't take as long as number one. Good point. Um, but number five is the need for therapy and the fact that many, many just refuse to admit the need for therapy. Because they don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Because that's what they think. Talk therapy. Yeah. They think it's useless. Mm-hmm. They, um, they think it's, if it's a male, I think more so than a female, they think it's wimpy. Mm-hmm. They're still, even though we're so pleased with the amount of attention that mental health and and the need to address mental health is getting today, these days in our society, as compared to in the past. 
that's a huge blessing. But still, there's so many people that think that talking about their stuff is wimpy. You know, especially if we're drinkers, we've spent years and decades pushing that shit down with the alcohol and the idea of letting it out. One one of the people that we spend a lot of time with, a dear sweet friend of ours, she's talked about how she's pushed so much stuff down. She's afraid to let it out because she's afraid when she opens the floodgates, she won't ever be able to close them again. Mm -hmm. And so how do you let it out slowly? How do you... And then, I mean, that's what a therapist is trained to do, to help you bring you along and help you let it out slowly so that it doesn't overwhelm you and and wreck you by, by letting it out. But so many people just don't understand the need for therapy. You know, again, going back to point number one, my childhood trauma wasn't that bad. I was raised in a loving, stable family. So what do I have to talk to a well, therapist about? When I was speaking with my therapist, one time I was telling him something and I was like, but it was nothing. He was like, I'm calling bullshit on yeah, that. Because it good. was something. That's good. It was something. You're talking about it. You remember it today. It was something. Absolutely. So I, I love that. Um, but, you know, and I know that for a lot of people, opening up is very hard because they have locked and packed away all of those feelings like... They just can't imagine ever talking about it to some stranger. One of the people in her Echoes of Recovery group, she talked about how when she did finally drag her husband to, I think that was a couples therapy Mm -hmm. session, her husband, the very first thing he said to the therapist was, listen, I'm here because my wife's making me be here, but I've got all this stuff locked down inside and you are never going to crack it open. So good luck. And then he sat down on the couch and folded his arms across his chest and was obstinate until they yeah. gave up on therapy. Yeah. Um, well, that... and there's so many... I'm sorry. No, go ahead. There's so many things that are changing in therapy. I know um, there's a lot of, you know, conversation now about seeing a therapist and mental health. and But they're, we're kind of on this brink of these new ways to do therapy. Um ART and MDR. Is that what it's called? MDR? MDR, I'm familiar with, yeah. ART is like, um, it's a little bit different, but it's faster. Yeah. Um, Not very many people are trained um, to do it. But it's it's not just what you see on old TV episodes. Lay down on a couch and and just tell me about your childhood, you know, like. So there are advancements in therapy techniques. Yeah, yeah, and really kind of cutting to the chase like of of getting to what's really the issue instead of just or you know and and different therapies have or different therapists had different styles so yeah you don't have to stick with a therapist if you don't feel like you're getting anything out of it like you move around whereas i think some people think i'll be in therapy for the rest of my life well you might be doing some sort of therapy for the rest of your life but maybe you've moved therapist or you've done different strategies and you've kind of had a progression You know, one of the silver linings of COVID is people are more adept at technological communication, you know, Zoom calls, for instance, right? And I don't think Zoom is the technology that they necessarily use, but it has brought on a huge wave of therapy by video call that was available before, but people were just, no, if I'm going to get therapy, I go to someone's office and I sit on their couch and now, because of COVID, people have become much more accepting of the idea of of being in their own home on their computer, 
having a conversation with a therapist and you know we aren't sponsored by Talkspace or what's the other one better help better help but gosh i got to tell you uh we should be buying stock in these companies because i don't know how that's not the the wave of the future we we have health care for our ourselves and our four kids but it i mean you looked into it it was <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and yeah. hundreds of dollars for you to go to therapy well, through then our you had to work around, provider yeah and then you had to work around their schedule and yeah monday through friday and with these different advances i mean maybe somebody that's a therapist wants to have a more flexible schedule i mean maybe their parents and they're still like helping homeschool or maybe they were just homeschool parents anyhow and you know or or caretakers of somebody through the week so they want to have some flexibility in their schedule so that's i think it's a great advancement that yeah you have that and, and instead of taking the hour to have the therapy session and also a half an hour to get there and a half mm-hmm. hour to get home it's just one hour instead of two hours you just you can be in your you know robe and slippers and you you find mm-hmm. a room that you can shut the door behind you and boom you're in your therapy session mm-hmm. and they're just so much more affordable so I, I just I think the 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 barriers people put up to refusing to go to therapy, it's getting harder and harder for those barriers to make any sense. I will also say I remember years ago you were against hundred percent therapy. I remember one yeah. time, you know, you you talked about an example of a family member how you didn't feel it helped, but you had only seen a smidgen. But that was also your deflection and your excuse not to let. Absolutely deflection. And that you were worried about, oh, well, what if somebody is in the office or is the receptionist, again, letting out that secret? Like, why is why is Sherry here at a therapy, you know, appointment when then we saw each other pass in the hallway of somebody I might have known or known you? It's like when you run into someone at McDonald's and you're both embarrassed that the other person's <laughs> seeing that you're at McDonald's. But their fries are so good. You know. Yeah. I'm only here to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. 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 But but no, it, you know, it's a good point. I was against I was very against therapy, <laughs> but that was back when I was actively drinking. Right, right. So here's the thing. I don't want you and I don't want me to go and talk about this shameful thing because the shameful thing is still going on. Yeah. I've done nothing to correct the shameful thing. Once I got sober, I mean, as our listeners know, I'm more than willing to talk about my shamefulness of the past because I know I'm no longer repeating yeah. the shamefulness. Well, and I That's think that's different. I'll go talk to a therapist now and say, "How are these past events impacting my today? Help me work through that," because I know I'm not continuing to pour gasoline on the fire. Well, and I would even say, "Well, I just know that I have an anger issue and." The way I was grown up, you know, the way I grew up, like I had these learned traits and these learned coping mechanisms. And and how about I just go and talk about that? And you'd be like, no, because you were afraid the secret was going to get out. And we've had people, you know, well, even at a medical doctor, you go in, how many drinks do you have? You know, and then there are all these underlying health issues. And then they don't really dig and dive in and ask how much alcohol is really going on or... You, you know. yeah, why were those questions even on the survey if you weren't going to address them? Yeah, or even as being the loved one of someone who is dealing because we know the stress and what stress does to your body. Well, dive in and say, you know, my husband is an alcoholic or, you know, my father is an alcoholic as a teen and you're sitting in there and having your private consult with your doctor, which you are, you know, that's how it goes now. Teens have private time with their doctor. You know, it's really hard to, like, open up because you don't want to let that secret out. But 
we know that alcohol creates so much stress and chaos, mind and physical, that you need to let it out and let somebody in the medical profession know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So other reasons that we hear people say all the time that they they avoid going to the to a therapist and talking about their issues, my issues aren't big enough. Again, going back to that same thing we talked about earlier, the trauma from my childhood. I don't have any trauma from my childhood. My childhood was idyllic. I have a stable job as an adult. I have a wife and kids. There's nothing to see here. Well, everyone's got something to see here. It's becoming more and more common that you hear people, experts in the field, say everyone should be in trauma. It's just... Therapy. In, not in yeah, trauma. not in trauma. Pardon <laughs> yeah, no one everyone, needs to be. Everyone should be in therapy. It's, it's just, it should be part, you know, just like, you know, fruit and vegetables should be part of a balanced diet. It should be part of a, a balanced, healthy lifestyle to have someone that you can talk Even to. Even if it's for a short stint, like say you're doing well, but like a short stint, something stressful grief counseling you know yeah. those sort of things like and that's just... back to back to promoting our non-sponsors but that's why where those better help and talk space yeah. are really great because you sign contracts. in for a month you do it for a month you do it for a second month if you want and then you're out if you want to be and you can get back in if you want and mm-hmm. it's 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 easy and it, and that's how it that's how it should be it shouldn't it shouldn't be this big arduous task to sign on with a therapist and then you know, and then people keep going because they feel guilty because, you know, they don't want to say that they're they're done with the therapist because they're afraid they'll offend that person or that person's going to say to them, "Oh, you're far from done. You're not even close to fixed." Mm-hmm. So it's nice to to have that disconnect with the the online service because you can just take your credit card number back and say you don't have that anymore, and I won't be showing up anymore. Yeah. yeah. The last thing I want to mention on this topic about the need for therapy is we hear very frequently that the drinker has a disconnect between the issues that they need to work on and the drinking. Often, the drinker will admit to their spouse, yes, I do have these issues, whether it be from my childhood or this stress from work, these things that are plaguing me, I do have these issues, but what does that have to do with my drinking? My, you know, I, I, I drink to have fun and I drink to relax and I drink on the weekends. They're unrelated and they, they aren't unrelated at all. Um, the drinker just can't see the connection. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I, you drink because you have insecurities. Yeah. You drink because you have fears. And where do they come from? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. So those are the five universalisms of the high-functioning alcoholic through the eyes of the loved ones. Now, what happens if you just keep sticking with the universalisms and you don't do anything about it? You don't do anything about that childhood trauma that's plaguing you and you continue to just drive forward toward traditional cultural work success and ignore the needs of the people around you and yourself in the process and you keep using alcohol as a coping tool. And you, you keep struggling to figure out what the hell is my purpose and you ignore the need for therapy. What happens if you just keep down the path of those five universalisms? If we ignore our needs and we keep medicating, it slowly gets worse. That's the diabolical nature of alcoholism. It never ever gets better as long as you keep drinking. I've never in the hundreds and thousands really of cases that we we know about about alcoholism there's um sorry i got distracted there's never a situation where 
um, things get better. Depression and anxiety piles up. Uh, alcohol becomes less effective um, as we drink, so we have to drink more to get the same effect. Our relationships get bur- get worse. We begin to blame our crazy wife. Our crazy wife is the reason the relationship's bad. We have no understanding of the fact that the alcohol is causing the problem. the The lingering trauma impact is there. Um, we we're just not living a full life. And the worst part about it, Sherry, we pass the cycle on to our kids. We create minor traumas in their childhoods because of our drinking, minor or major traumas in their childhoods that they're going to have to deal with as adults. We continue to glorify alcohol. Alcohol is what you use to de-stress. Adults drink alcohol. Alcohol is related to success. We create this glorification of alcohol and we continue to pursue, when we continue to pursue the traditional work success as you know the pinnacle, then we pass that on to our kids too. So they go out into the world thinking that as long as they do well in their career, it doesn't matter how much you know thunderous turmoil is happening in the background. That's all they've got to do is keep having successful careers. And so we pass those cycles on, and nothing changes. And this is why Sherry. You and I believe that while recovery and discovery are important, there's nothing more important than prevention. And that's something that we are spending an increasing amount of our time on. We've got to, yeah, we got to fix our own stuff. But even more importantly, we've got to keep this from being a generational thing where we just go from one generation to the other. Here's how you do life. And it continues to be less fulfilling than it otherwise could be. So that's our that's our big plug for the importance of prevention. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're you as a listener are, are doing part of your part just by listening to this and continuing to support us. And you know, our audience continues to grow week after week, month after month. And the more we get the word out, the better job we're doing of preventing this cycle from passing on to the next generation. And let let's end this epidemic. Um, that's been going on literally for centuries because we've got the technology and the understanding of brain chemistry. We know enough now that there's no reason for this to keep going. So really high on our list, my list, I think you will agree, is uh, let's not pass this on to our kids, right? Absolutely. Super important. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast, the five universalisms of high-functioning alcoholics through the eyes of the loved ones. I hope you got something from this that you can take out into your life, into your relationship, and um, give you something to address if you're the alcoholic or if you are the loved one of the heavy drinker, something that you can address together and make your life a little better as a result. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.